Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall, and you can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. If you like the show, rate, review, subscribe, smash that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate it. We would. We would really appreciate it. Share the show. Tell, what do you what do you always say? 10, 12, 25, 100 people about tell, the, t- the product. Tell your entire neighborhood. Go door to door. Knock on their door. <laughs> it helps if, if you're... It helps if you're like playing it on on a portable speaker as you're as you're having this conversation. <laughs> oh, look, it's the show right here. Here, why don't you go ahead and have a listen right now? Are you registered to vote? And would you like to listen to this podcast? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, did you see the sign that said no solicitation? <laughs> get get the f out of here. Uh, today on the show, speaking of f, Jason Fitz. My former co-host here on 102.5 in Nashville, of course, is a rock star across every single platform, digital, radio, TV, Snapchat. I mean, literally every single platform. Literally everywhere. Uh, and we had a blast talking with him. We talk about his music career, his transition to sports media, his time here in Nashville, but a lot about what he's doing, how to connect with audiences, his personality, what he's learned through his career, just a ton of stuff. And he's one of the greatest talkers in the history of talking. Uh, and I love having him on. And uh, so you guys are going to... I think you guys are going to really enjoy that as well. So you'll hear from Jason Fitz coming up in just a minute. We got ratings and recommendations for the Winter Olympics and for some college basketball coming up a little bit later on in the show, as we usually do. However, Steve Cavendish, Lamestream Sports, is in fact brought to you by... It's brought to you by Jaspers. Always brought to you by Jaspers. Still Jaspers, everybody. Go to Jaspers. They have fantastic food. Some new menu items we'll tell you about in a little bit. Um, constantly evolving. You know Deb Paquette and all the work she does over there at Four Top. So check out Jasper's Free Parking. Great food. Great place to watch a game. Whatever game you might be watching this weekend. A big game a of big, some sort. Large game. I, I don't large. know if we're legally allowed to say anything else. <laughs> Until they send us the cease and desist letter. Um, <laughs> Have a super time when you go to Jasper's. Have a super time at Jasper's watching a game. Exactly. And have a bowl. Of have a power bowl. Have a power bowl. <laughs> uh, all right. So we'll get to ratings and recommendations a little bit later on. Um, I don't know what we need to say to prepare people for this, because if you know Jason Fitz, I, I don't really think we have to say a whole lot here, man. He's just uh, an extraordinary guy, and I'm glad I got to work with him for a year. That's great. Shut up. Fitzy, welcome to the show, my good friend. It is great to see your face. How are you, sir? And I'm good. Better now that I'm hanging out with you again. Like I feel like we should have like reunited, and it feels so good playing in the background. Like yeah, but just is, this, but just not at like five thirty in the morning. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, if, if there's any medal that Braden deserves, it's dealing with my energy that early. Because let's just be real. Like I am, I am the Energizer Bunny at four in the morning as much as I am at four in the afternoon, and that is. In and of itself, I learned that when I got to Bristol. Not everybody's as understanding when you're pretty trotting in at 3.45 a.m. You're like, what's up, everybody? Yeah, it's its own delight. It is the, what I think it is personally, is it's the 12th and 13th pump of vanilla caramel macchiato that you've put into the into the coffee. It's you would not be the first very, 10, it's the last three. You'll be so proud. Like, I haven't had an energy drink in two years at this point. Uh, I, wow. I, I've limited, I, I have the occasional soda. Like I'm talking once every three, four months. Like I, I had to clean up cause I finally realized that I was going to rot from the inside out. Like, I mean, all, all we kept, we used to joke about it, but like the first time I did a national show with uh, Michael Jr. He looked over when I was doing the TV thing and he's like, are, is that, 
is that three sugar-free Red Bulls? And I slammed all of them right before the show. I'm like, let's go. And he's like, this is not healthy for you. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably. I realized at some point at ESPN, I looked at myself on TV and I was like, I don't think I'm well. So, you know, I've cleaned that up. But, you know, it's a it's, it's a Listen, delight. Life on television will do that to anybody. That's just, that's, that's how it works. When the camera, when you start studying, you know, your jowls and your, mm-hmm. you know, the bags, you're like, wait a second. I, I feel like I should, I should do better than this, which we're going to get to in, in the course of this conversation is like the 4 billion jobs you've already had at, at ESPN. But I want to start with, and I think this is an important lesson for people that want to get into media or anything that they care about, which is you had a career. You had a career from a very young age, you had a good career, a great career at a very young age was something you were very passionate about. And at some point in your life, you decided this, I needed to, you wanted to make the switch and it's a pretty large switch. <laughs> and in, but in that, what I think is a lesson on how you got started, which is purely out of the love of basically the NFL and the Raiders. So explain to people your thought process behind launching the sports media stuff way back in the day before you and I even got together here locally in Nashville. Yeah, I think what's funny to me, I'll never forget, I, uh, uh, busiest year when I was out with the band Perry, we'd been gone 300 days. And I came home at the end of the year and I was like, man, you know, doing okay, paying my bills. Like I'm not making retirement money, but I'm, I'm like, I'm okay on a gig that's done pretty well. And I've been gone 300 days this year. And I don't love it. And so that's when, you know, Sonny was like, okay, what, what do you love? If I asked a hundred of your friends, what you really care about, what would the answer be? And I said, sports, like uh, that's, I love sports. And she's like, well, find a way to talk about them. So the first time I ever did anything was literally a 10 minute Facebook. I popped it up and man, I'm telling you most nervous I've ever been in my life was popping that up because it's different and you're vulnerable and you're like, man, what if I suck at this? Right? So I put it out and I'm like, we'll see how it goes. And a bunch of my friends started commenting at the time. And they're like, man, this is like sitting on a bus with you. It's all you do talk about sports. So I, I stepped back from it. And I was like, man, th- it, it fed me in, in a way I didn't know I could be fed. And I remember so distinctly at the time, uh, entertainment attorney, since turned manager, Rob Baker, I sat down with Rob at uh, Frothy Monkey. And I said, I, I think I want to do sports talk. And he laughed and he's like, well, then do it. Like if you've been really successful at anything, the perception is you can be successful at anything you do from there. And he's like, while you're in Nashville, a city that limits your success, in the sense that like as a musician, everybody's got a good gig. So like nobody thinks it's impressive. He's like, you're you're on a band right now that just had their fourth number one. Like the rest of the world is going to look at it and say, you are crushing it. And he's like, so use the leverage you have from platform and start making content. And that was, I think, when he said start making content, that was the most empowering thing to me because I looked at it. And this is what I tell media kids that ask me all the time. Like, if you want to get into media, do it, make content. And it doesn't matter if anybody listens and Braden, you've heard this story a million times, but I remember I had an episode, my pod, I started a podcast. I want to talk to musicians about football and football players about music. And so I had an episode where I had Chef D on talking about karaoke and Peter King came on to talk about something and fallout boy was on talking about football. And so I had all of them in one episode and like I had 12,000 listens the first day. And I was like, oh, I, and this is like podcasts are not this big. This is like 2015, right? Like podcasts weren't what they are now. 12,000 was a lot. And I was like, yeah. So I felt like a boss. And the next week I was like, I don't need any guests. I'm fine. 12. I went from 12,000 to 12 <laughs> listens total. Yeah. And I remember one of the guys on the road was making fun of me so hard because I carried my stuff with me everywhere. I went into every locker room. I made content everywhere I was. Like Keith Urban sound checking behind me. It doesn't matter. I'm screaming into a mic about the Packers, right? So like I was trying to do this thing and they all made fun of me. They're like, you had 12 listens this week. Why are you doing? And I kept saying, it takes one. 
takes one person in a position of power to hear what I do and say, that guy has talent. And that ultimately is what, like, it changed my life. It took one person hearing the podcast and saying, hey, you're actually really good at this. And that changed everything for me. So that's why I constantly tell people, like, follow your passion, but don't do it for the results. Don't do it for the numbers. Don't do it for the money. Do it hoping that you can put out something like your demo. That's the one thing that somebody hears that they're like, hell yeah, I need more of that in my life. And that, that worked for me. And it's really interesting because the barrier there is not, I need to sign with a label. I need to find somebody who will, who I can go out on tour with or whatever your music aspiration is. It's I can record this on my laptop and put it up for the world. And that's it. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it than that, but, but at, at its heart, that's it. Did you, did you ever feel like when you were, when you were doing the pod that you had to, uh, were you were you trying to promote it or were you trying to were you trying to make it break out or was it just rising and falling with the the guests every time it um it was less for me about promotion and more about figuring out how to make it sound as pro as possible and that's like the audio guy me right like how much in you know when i got the band perry gig like so many people in nashville i got a cd with 17 songs on it and they said the first show's tomorrow like that's that's the way it works right so I listened, I knew my influences, Dan Patrick, Colin Cowherd, stuff like that. And I, Mike and Mike, I knew the shows that I am, I was influenced by. So I listened to them and I, I got very immediately got good at what makes that show what it is. How do you incorporate that in? I timed things out. So I built a template in Pro Tools that was like, I had music come in at 12 minutes. Nobody ever taught me that the first segment of a radio show is typically 12 minutes. I just heard it enough that I was like, all right, so at about 12 minutes, music comes in. So I, I put together, my whole thing was like, you can't control the same, same as Nashville. When I moved to Nashville, that was 96 when I moved with my buddies from high school and we were calling voicemails of record labels at the time, just singing on their voicemails, trying to get signed. Right. Like, so to me, you can't control whether someone's going to hear it, but what you can't control is when they hear it, do they say, Holy cow, this is, this is it. And the funny thing for me, you flash forward, the first people that ever really took interest in my podcast, just my podcast was CBS sports. When they launched a new pod, like they didn't have a podcast arm. I was the first football podcast that CBS sports ever signed. And they signed me. And the day after I signed my contract for one year, they called me and they said, great. Can you teach all of our people how you build your podcast? Cause it sounds pro. And at the time that was really difficult to do. And so that's when I realized that, Hey, Something I'm doing is working because they may hate the content, but they'll come back to listen to the way it's presented over and over and over again. That's all I've worked. I figured like if you make great content, the rest of it will figure itself out someday. Like I'm not I'm not as smart as Clay. Like I can't figure out how to rip things apart, sell things, make things happen. Like I'm not good at showing up every day and saying, okay, how do I sell this podcast? How do I market this podcast? What's my design going to look like on like all that stuff, man, that is not what I'm good at. What I'm good at is hand me what we're going to talk about and let me do that. So from day one, it was how do I make something that pops so that eventually when somebody at ESPN hears it, they say, we need that. Like my goal was always ESPN. Have you listened to any of those pods recently? <laughs> Not in a long time, but yeah, I mean, and it's funny because the way I broke and the lucky break I got, um, I somebody reached out to me on Twitter when I was touring, just a guy. Um, and we DM'd each other uh, because he he works for ESPN or worked at the time for ESPN, and he'd gone to a Cole Swindell concert. And we had mutual friends that from the Twitter lexicon, and uh, you know John McClain from the Houston Chronicle had been really huge. When he came on my podcast once, we became big friends. He gave me his whole phone book. So McClain had introduced me to all these people. So this guy named Sean 
at ESPN, like we followed each other, but we didn't know each other. And he tweeted out at a Cole Swindell concert. So I DM'd him and I was like, hey, you know, I'd love to meet up next time I'm in Connecticut uh, when we when I play a show. And he responded and said, you know, my cousin really wants to be a musician. Would you be willing to talk to him? And my answer to that has always been yes. So like I sat down with this cousin and talked to him about the music business and my experience with it, how I made it there, air quotes, all those things. And I had no idea that Sean was in the talent department. So, you know, three months later, I think it was, he sent me another DM and was like, you tweet about your podcast. If you want, I used to do podcasts for ESPN. I'll give it a listen. And I was like, hell yeah, that'd be amazing. So he sent me three pages of typed notes on what to do differently in my podcast. And the next week I sent him a link and said, hey, if you don't, if you don't mind, take a second and, and check it out. He called me. It's the first time we ever talked on the phone. He called me and said, I've never had anybody take every note. And he, he said, I give you three pages of notes and you integrated every single one of them. And I'm like, well, I'm, I was a classical music kid at, at Juilliard growing up. Like you don't get two shots. Like you, you make the mistake <laughs> once. And so that's the way my brain's wired, but that really changed my life. Cause Wyman was like, you're talented, but you're also coachable. And, and that, that means I see something there. And for me, to your point, like I've gone back and I've listened to him and so much of what your, your habits are your habits, your styles are your styles. I still try to break some of the habits that I have from the first podcast that weren't particularly good. And I'm telling you all like the, the dirty secret we all know. I used to sit down in Pro Tools and I would edit out every breath, every um, every every opportunity <laughs> for somebody to tell me that I didn't know what I was doing. I edited it out because I needed to give myself that safety like it saved me listening back to the old ones. I can hear the little clips sometimes, but it saved me being able to edit because it, it helped me while I figured out how to edit myself naturally. I have never edited Steve Cavendish in any oh, way, sure. shape or form. <laughs> he, he is he's never been edited. There's like 16 lessons you've already given us here. And, and I think a couple of quick ones that we don't need to, to linger on. But one is like just if somebody asks for help, just give it to them. Like it's just, if somebody wants you to talk to their their kid or talk to their friend or come speak at this or talk to that. Just always do it. I think that's a great, I think that's a great sort of way to live. Um, but there's two really important and interesting inflection points for you because we both kind of came up through Sirius XM as well, podcast and Sirius XM, which is a very different format from, I, I also was influenced by Dan Patrick and the way the science of radio is taught. And so I'm, I'm curious about how much of that science of radio that you started learning a little bit more formally once you start working at ESPN and, and, and locally with, with, with me, I never had any of that, that training uh, until that point. How different was your podcast execution, your Sirius XM execution, which is much more like a podcast, frankly, than a radio show? How, how different were those two things from what you're doing today, talking to 900 affiliates versus the podcast and Sirius XM? it's incredible, the difference. And I think sometimes what helps me is I didn't come up from a traditional broadcasting background. So I didn't have limitations in my mind to what you're supposed to do. And uh, I'll shout out a mutual friend of ours, uh, Chris Childers. Uh, I, I reached out to Chris because, you know, our wives were friends and uh, he was on serious. And I was like, man, I, I don't even know how this works. And so he's the first person that ever showed me like the concept of a topic tree and sit down. And, and, and the funny thing is I sit down now at ESPN with production assistants and I'm like, Hey, let me show you the topic tree to help you break these things out. Like, because Chris showed that to me and, and a lot of kids don't know it. that are coming up in our, in our business right now, which is kind of crazy to me. And, and I look back at Sirius and the first time that Steve Cohen ever gave me a shot on Sirius XM, it was the middle of July. And he called me and said, hey, you want to handle four hours on the NFL network? And I was like, yes, I'm in. And then he hung up and I thought, 
oh my God, what am I going to talk about for four hours in the middle of July solo on the NFL? And like, it was brutal. Like I got into the office. I don't know. Like my, my buddy Andy showed up with me because I wanted help. Like I'd never done radio like this. I didn't know how the call system worked. I didn't know anything. And like, I'm sitting there storyboarding every block, which I still do to this day. I still like, I, we, we have a graph we build out for a three hour show or a two hour show and there's blocks and you write what you're going to talk about. And like, I, I still do some of that, but the concept of, I don't have any help. And, you know, on Sirius, you can just kind of go wherever you want ESPN. And this is something you and I learned at one or two five ESPN is part of the, the principle of broadest set of the audience. So you constantly got to ask yourself, not what I want to talk about, which I think on Sirius XM, you can get away with a little bit like, hey, this is on my mind and I'm talking about it today at ESPN. You're, you're, it's because you're already in the niche. You've already you've already whittled the audience to college football, soccer, MMA. You know, for your case, it was NFL. Well, and that's uh, so and I'll speak to that real quick because nothing I do is quick. But um, I remember the, the night Alex Smith was traded. I had just got the ESPN and Alex Smith at the time was traded from the Chiefs to the Washington football team. So we blew up the radio show, Spain and Fitz at the time, three hours. We blew it up. We had guests on it. I took notes on it. I walked two buildings over in the same campus to host Sports Center on Snapchat that night. And I walked in with pages of notes. I'm like, I got everything we could possibly need. I can write all these scripts on Alex Smith. And our producer uh, looked at me and he's like, yeah, our audience does not care. And I was like, whoa, 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 it's the <laughs> NFL. And he's like, yeah, it's just Snapchat. They don't care. And I was like, I, I don't think that's right. And so we led that night with a preseason NBA Lonzo Ball highlight. And I did my job and I did exactly like I, I wrote the scripts to the way the producer saw it. And the next day I came in because at the time we got Sports Center Snap daily numbers. And I came in ready, just like peak, peacocking out. I'm like, let's see those numbers and let's see the click through. And damn, the minute I mentioned Alex Smith, boom, everybody clicked through. And he's like, you got to remember, SportsCenter on Snapchat has 2 million viewers a day. They're 13 to 25. They're kids, and they love the NBA. They don't give a damn about the NFL. And that's real. Like, we've studied that so many times. And so the difference at ESPN is broadest set of the audience means broadest set of my audience listening to me on this platform right now for this show. And that's a much different, like, you know, you know this, Braden, when you're doing the Saturday morning show, it's college, it's college football and gambling. Like, that's what people want. But what's weird for me is that, like, I host everything in the digital landscape that we do with the college football on it. And I don't talk about it on radio at all, all week because meters show that Monday through Friday, college football fans, McAfee's talked about this, like college football fans don't really care on sports talk radio. So like, it's an interesting, like that's the difference. Sirius XM or a podcast, you do whatever the hell you want to. It is your job on ESPN. And I think if FS want to be the same, it's your job at that, that platform to say, what does this audience really care about? That's why we talk so much about the Cowboys because Cowboys fans listen. There's there's one more, uh, Steve, I want to follow up here with with you on Fitzy about the sort of like what you do is the, the light turns on and I perform and here's my talent and here's my skill. And I'm curious, I've, I've just seen you do it in person where you just sort of like you, you take a mic, you stand in front of hundreds of people and you can just you just can make people pay attention. And I don't there's just people that have that and people that don't. And how much of your just pure talent because it's not like you in the band are out there like trying to articulate blitz pressures from the outside linebacker. Like it's not, there's not a ton of overlap there, but standing in front of a hundred thousand people playing a fiddle solo, as I always tell people like that prepares you for a spotlight that just people anywhere else in any other walk of life just haven't had. How much did that help you when it comes to grabbing a mic and just 
being on camera and projecting and, and like, what did you learn about that experience that helped you with the other thing? Every, I mean, that's everything. And the similar similarities between the two. Uh, so when I was in a band that nobody ever heard of, never made it. I remember the first night we were playing back-to-back nights in the same venue. And I remember the first night, it was one of my first big fiddle solos. And I had worked on for hours on this perfectly arpeggiated, like this thing was a, it was a beast. And I was nervous going into the solo because I had to get all over. And I was like, I was showing off chops. And I finished what was one of the wildest solos I've ever played in my life to a smattering of applause. The next night, same <laughs> venue. I have had way too much to drink, like at a level of drink, but where I should not be playing. And I realized as I'm about to go to this solo that there's not a chance in hell I can play it. My fingers and my brain are not on the same page. It's not <laughs> happening. So I do what every fiddle player that, you know, that that's just mailing it in at that point does. I, I walk to the edge of the stage. I fall down on my knees and I just Charlie Daniels it. Like I'm just chaos. Nothing's really being played, hacking it. It is a terrible solo. Crowd goes nuts. And I never <laughs> forgot that because like there's a fine line between being the best musician in the room and the best showman in the room. And if you have to sacrifice one or the other, when you're, when you're playing a small club in front of a few hundred people, you can be the best musician in the world because they love that. Right. When you're playing the bluebird, you can be the smartest writer in the room because they love that. But when you're playing big arenas, you got to be big. And you know, that, that, that is still to this day. And, and Braden, you've seen this in person. Like there are times that I turn the red light off and I'm just like, God, like I'm exhausted because to me, it's not just what you present. It's can you present it at a hundred miles an hour from minute one? And can you make sure like being in a band when you're working with somebody, I got to know who, every person I'm working with, what they're good at, what they're not good at, how I can set them up to be successful, how I can bring energy to them, how I can pour myself into them to get the best first. Like that's all on my mind. So like th th there's 10% of when I'm on air is about me and my take. And the other 90% is about the energy behind it, is it captivating? And is it making the show better while I'm doing it? And that's, that's the drain when you have three or four shows in a day. Like I'm talking about sports, that's not hard, but you do sort of collapse into a ball at the end and say, good God, just give me like below deck. I, I need to not think for a minute and recharge. So that it, but that all comes from music. I know you wanted to do something different, but do you miss playing? Um, I don't miss the music business. So that, that, that I always tell people, I, I mean, I still have a piano at my house. I still have, I have a wall with a, you know, a couple of fiddles and a dobro and acoustic up. Like I, I sit and play whenever I want to, you know, and I, I don't miss sitting down and writing a song that has to be three and a half minutes, three fifteen preferably that gets the course in the first 42 seconds and looking at it saying like, what's Luke Bryan cutting and how can I write something for it? I don't miss that. And I don't miss having to sit down and reroute an entire week of life because you're trying to figure out how to squeeze in this one show for this one radio station because that one programming director controls whether or not you're going to go to number one in this market. Yeah, like I don't miss any of that. Um, I don't miss the music business, but I'll always be a musician. Like, I, and you know, it, it took a long time. Like, all kidding aside, like I have the records behind me on the wall. I never had those till I finished playing. And when I finished playing, I was like, man, I was so in the thick of how do I get more that I didn't appreciate what I was doing at the time. I think most of us are so. I, one thing that I did immediately when I stopped playing was like, I'm going to get the gold records, the platinum records. I'm going to put them up on my wall and I'm going to make sure that whatever happens in this career, I look back and say, Hey, I accomplished, like I, I picked my out in the music business, which is rare. And I accomplished everything I wanted to other than playing Saturday night live. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I did. I just don't miss the business side. When's the last time you played out that was it not in your living room? 
Oh, that's been a minute. Um, yeah, I'm thinking actually a couple of right before COVID hit, Phil Vassar, who I played with for a minute, uh, for probably two years, I played for Phil, two, two and a half years. Uh, Phil was in Connecticut and I'm still close with Phil and with his uh, band leader, J Dog, Jeff Smith. Um, and I texted him and I was like, hey, uh, they were doing an acoustic show, which is always just the two of them. And when I toured, I always was the third on those acoustic shows. So I was like, hey, you want a third guy on the acoustic show? So I went in having not played or sang any of those songs in year, probably a decade at that point. And I just stood up on stage, played the whole set with Phil. And that was right before COVID. And it was awesome. Like it, it was so much fun to have Phil just be like, oh, I, I really like at one point, cause those are so relaxed shows. Like he doesn't have a set list. He just turned around and he has a song called John Wayne. And he's like, I always loved listening to you play on that. We're going to play that now. And I'm like, well, let's hope I remember it. So uh, <laughs> it was, that was a, that was a thrill. Like th those are the sorts of things I, I like doing. You have watched the music industry take this just nosedive here over the last two years. I mean, it's it's only been in the last you know six months or so forth that a lot of people have gotten out and toured recently. Do you think to yourself, man, I am so glad I avoided that, that I'm not in the middle of like trying to figure out rent and <laughs> or mortgage and and whatever else, like all my friends in the music industry? It is better to be lucky than good so often. Like, and, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get another offer when I was, when I was touring with Phil, um, he, he was starting to work less. We all knew that there might be a problem with the record label. I got offered at the time the Dirk's Bentley gig and I'll never forget. I was, I was broke. I needed the money badly. And, uh, Dirk's band leader called and said, Hey, we need a fiddle player that can also play some like flat pick acoustic bluegrass sort of stuff. Um, and I needed the gig and Phil, we had just opened for Dirks like two days before. That's why they called. He's like, we'd love to have you come out. And I turned it down. And I remember uh, my wife at the time was like, what are you doing? Like, we, we, we need that gig. And I said, no, nah, I'll, I'll never take a gig that I know I can't do because I'll get fired. And that's, that's not good for where we're headed. And it's funny, the guy that took that gig, who's been in that gig ever since, and is just a great dude, opened up a seat that I ended up getting called for and getting with Easton Corbin, which put me on the same tour where I reconnected with the drummer from the band Perry, which led me to that gig. And, you know, I say that because like I was good and, and I was I'm I'm damn proud of what I did. But every step of that, I had to be a little bit lucky to make sure that I could keep feeding my family. And that's not lost on me. And when I got offered the for the show on ESPNU that I got offered, it was they could fire me after one Monday. And the, the contract was literally written. I, I, I'm always so transparent about this. I think uh, the max I could make was $12,000 at ESPN. The max money that I was ever going to make for that contract was $12,000. The minimum I was going to make was $1,000. And if I sucked after one show, they were going to fire me. And so I went to the Van Perry at the time and I said, hey, I need every Monday off for this college football show. I'll find a sub. You guys good with it? I thought we'd worked it out. Turns out we hadn't worked it out. So a couple of weeks before they were like, yeah, we're not comfortable letting you be gone on Mondays. Uh, we, we really feel like we need you here because they'd added like a show in Japan for USO or something. And they wanted me to do it. And so I was like, uh, OK, I quit. And I quit the band with no idea. Like I didn't have the gig with Braden. I didn't have any of that. I just I, I quit the band with an ESPN show where I could be fired a thousand dollars and had no idea how I was going to pay my mortgage. And it was I'm not kidding, like a week after that that I got the call from uh, Chris Childers and from Braden both that were like, hey, can you come do an hour of like mock radio at 1025? And I'm telling you, Steve, you will appreciate this. Everybody will appreciate this. It happened to be the week that the Titans were playing the Raiders in the preseason. So when we went in to do that hour of radio, 
I'm telling you, I sounded like the smartest asshole you've ever seen in your life because I knew everything <laughs> about the matchups of a preseason football game. So I'm sitting there with Braden and like I'm bringing the, the same energy I always bring to everything. And I'm breaking down the, the everything you could want to know about this matchup. Like I got lucky. Right. And so as I was I, I still had a couple of shows left with the band. And as I got on the, the plane to the band, I got the call from the programming director saying, hey, you know, we're going to offer you this job. And you pieced all you piece all of that together and it was barely keeping the lights on. There was no, there was no doubt about it. it. We were not doing it to get rich, but I knew I needed the reps. And like, so every step of that process, I bet on myself, I did what I thought was the right thing to do for my workflow and it paid off. And I look now and I'm like, man, not only was I lucky that, that Braden needed a co-host and was I lucky that I got the opportunity with ESPN. I, I turned those into bigger opportunities. I worked my ass off for everything that came from that. But man, to be so lucky to be out of the music business, like my neighbor in Hendersonville has been the fiddle player for Gary Allen for years. And I love the guy. And I look around and I'm like, I can't imagine being in that situation where you have no idea when your next show is coming and how you're going to make money. And like the, the Gary Allens and the Chris Youngs of the world are going to be fine. They have they have bank accounts that are ready for this. But like everybody that works for them, all the crew people, all the musicians, like yeah. all the behind the scenes people, it's going to take a decade for people to recoup because even if you get your job back today, what are you doing with the debt you accumulated over the last two years? Like that stuff's real for drummers and bass players and lighting guys and sound guys. And like, I don't know how Nashville, the community, the, the, in, the actual music community digs their way out of this hole. Lamestream Sports is a podcast about Nashville media, sports, and business. Steve Cavendish of the Nashville Banner, and it is brought to you by... Jaspers, always brought to you by Jaspers. The next evolution of the sports bars, I believe what we started calling them about a year ago, about this time. And it just sort of has stuck. And the reason it's stuck is because they are, in fact, the next evolution of the sports bar. They are constantly evolving. And they have new menu items, some new entrees. Deb's been tweaking some stuff. She's been in the workshop. And she's got it ready for you guys for... Back uh, in the lab. Super Sunday, we'll call it. There's stuff ready for you guys. So go check out the menu. They got some new brunch items as well, some new entrees, really good stuff over there. The parking is still free. They have not evolved that because it doesn't need any evolving. It's already to the point of maximum evolution. And uh, the happy hours are great. The specials, the games, all that great stuff. So go go to Jasper's. Um, pick three items of food to watch a large football game on a Sunday. What are those three items? And I have a a philosophical food question for you after you give me those three so i'm a wings guy have to have wings for the big event now if i'm making them at home i usually like like a little korean spice or something like that but i but mm. i can i'm 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 wing agnostic i'll, I'll eat all kinds <laughs> of wings uh i like a little bit of chili okay uh, okay i can get behind that i'm gonna need some tums at the end of all this no free ads uh <laughs> I'm going to need something that's just like a little bit sweet. Um, okay. You know, maybe a little ice cream on the end. Uh, <laughs> Some dairy to calm down the, the kind of calm down everything else. I mean, that's a, that, that's, that, that's a good, that, that's a good combination of things that here, uh, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be my solid kind yep. of big game experience. That's, that's pretty great. By the way, Jasper's wings, you got Buffalo bang, bang, garlic, Parmesan or smoky red dry rub. And to your point, I'm good with all of those. Yeah. I, I'll say this also, and I do not say this lightly because I've tried a lot of these. Um, their cheese dip is maybe the best cheese dip in the entire city because queso generally just turns into a block in your stomach and it hurts you for a long time. J 
Jaspers will stay creamy and delicious for the entirety of the game. Even if you picked it up in the morning, it stays creamy. You keep it warm. It's amazing. Uh, It's like it sort of like blew my mind when I had uh, the queso at the Super Bowl party last year, a big game party last year at my house during COVID that no one attended. Um, But I'm I am wings number one, first and foremost, always across the board. Queso number two. So Jasper's has me covered there. Uh, I kind of can go around back and forth on the, on the third one. Maybe sliders, pork barbecue sliders, burger sliders, fried chicken sliders. Give me a good a sliders, a really good, a, a good option for a game. Um, here's my question, though. Is pizza a game day food, like a tailgate no. party food? Like, I don't feel like it is. No, it's it, it, unacceptable. It, right? it is not. It is not a tailgate food. Do not bring your pizza to my tailgate. It is not welcome there. Now, Jasper's has some amazing flatbreads, and they would be awesome during a big game party on Sunday. I can't even describe why pizza doesn't count as a big game party food. I can't even tell you why, but I just agree with you that it does not qualify. Am I wrong? Like, yeah. Can you explain you're, it? You're, you're a wordsmith. You're not a writer. <laughs> I can't explain it. It's just wrong. I mean, it, it's too wrong. common of a food. It, 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 yeah. it, is, it is too common of an, of an experience. You want you want something special for the big game. You're not eating wings all the time. I mean, I mean maybe you are, <laughs> and and if you are, kudos to you. But I'm not eating wings all the time, so yeah, so I'm bringing right. wings out for the game. Also, it feels like a cop out because you just call a place and get like four pies delivered. That's that's a cop out for a big game party. Um, go get some wings and some uh, quesadillas and some queso and some flatbreads. Get all that stuff from Jasper's and have a great time this weekend. Go to Jasper's, everybody. I want to spend a little bit of time on, on all the digital properties that you work on with ESPN and sort of the future of how we're distributing content, consuming content, the who's doing it. But I do want to, I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention your path through Nashville and, and with me up to, to that point. What did you, I learned a lot from you, um, not just the energy and, and sort of the, the work ethic. And um, there's a lot of things that I learned from you in the time spent there. But what did you, what do you remember about that year? What did you learn from that year? Because I did not even have a show (laughs) at at the time. uh, It was basically, they basically said, look, we want you to do a show. Do you have any ideas on, I I was like, there's one person I'd want to work with. And, and I I said the name, the program director said, that's the person we we're talking to. And I said, all right, make the phone call. And that's, you know, not that I had anything to do with it, but that's how you and I got together. What did you learn from that year? What do you remember from that year? I really wanted you to ask, what did you learn from me? Because that that would have been, I was ready for you to just go there, uh, which would have been hysterical, by the no, way. Um, no. I, I, uh, let me say, I learned, uh, there are so many memories from that year that were key uh, for me. I remember three days into the show, we talked about Marcus Mariota for three straight days. And I remember as I was walking out the door, looking at Ryan Porth, our, our, you know, our PD, who was brand new as a programming director at the time. And I was like, man, we've talked about Mariota for three days. What are we talking about tomorrow? And he said, Mariota. And that's when it hit me that like, it's different. And I I think one thing that really hit me, because at the time I was doing ESPNU college football show on Mondays and you and I were doing Monday through Friday. Right. And what really hit me working with you was that the level of preparation required to host a local show that involves the Vols is far different than the level of preparation that's required to host a national show about college football. Like, you know, uh, one of our NFL analysts, I won't, I won't throw him under the bus, but uh, I saw him a few years ago and he came to me and he's like, dude, you're covering the wrong sport. Get out of college football, go to the NFL. And he said, the reason you go to the NFL is that you start this season at max with a dozen teams that you really need to know inside and out by the end of the year, 
you've got eight and it's clear and you can just spend your week watching and listening to those eight. When you cover college football, you got to know everything about everybody or you will get destroyed. And I laughed at it at the time, but it's right. You know, one thing that I thought was really amazing is particularly when it was you, me and Julian uh, council was producing is I realized so quickly that I had a huge platform on an, yeah, I mean, ESPNU, not huge, but uh, huge, right. Huge platform uh, that I was really proud of. And I had less knowledge than you and Julia both. And there was a, a moment there that, that became such a challenge and like, okay, how do I keep up? And so I found myself reading, learning and listening more because we were on local radio together in a college football market that required that, you know, the Vols through and through, but that you also know the SEC through and through. And, you know, that to me was such a huge learning process in working with two guys that not only were passionate about college football, but also passionate about like, hey, there's an entertaining way to deliver X's and O's. So I thought that was really that was really powerful. Uh, I think local radio is such a bigger challenge than national radio. And I remember um, somebody that we both know that that sort of coached us a lot in the beginning. Um, I remember talking to him like two weeks in and you and I had had what I thought was a great show. Uh, at the time, it was Kaepernick taking a knee, and we had some really deep conversations about it. I remember getting in the car, and he called, and he said, how would you feel about the show today? And I said, man, I thought it was great. We had really good conversations. And he's like, yeah, it, it wasn't great. And he said, I'll tell you, it was a great conversation, but you didn't hit your audience because your your family stations also carries Mike and Mike. And he's like, his point was, you needed to turn this conversation into a local conversation. What happens if a Titan takes a knee in this situation? How would Nashville react to it? And I'd never thought of that. And I think one thing that, that hit me about that moment in time is that you and I were together. We were so new. We were so willing to be coached. And because of it, we got a lot of coaching that I just I feel like that made like I see radio differently today because I spent that time, however brief it was with you in a local market. Like I, I, I see the work way differently than some of my peers see the work like there, there are guys and. You know, there are guys I work with that are on radio every day that will talk about the Titans that, you know, haven't watched a single second of the Titans. And like you can get away with that for this long, but you can only get away with that for this long. So I think that was a big part of what hit me. Like I thought I was prepared until I worked every day with somebody that actually knew college football. And then I was like, oh, my God, I've got so much work to do. I, I did not need you to say all that, but I do appreciate it. Um, I, I will say this. The one thing I learned um, outside of lots of stuff about radio and hockey and all the things that you just mentioned I think the one thing I learned, and this is really inside baseball, but this is an inside baseball podcast, so who cares? And that is that every show is that is put on the air, and you you've had to deal with this at ESPN because of all the changes you've gone through. How many? I don't know how many different how many different jobs have you had at ESPN shows? It feels like eighteen uh, radio <laughs> shows. I've one, two, three, four, five. I'm on my fifth radio show in the last three years. So I think one of the lessons I learned, I learned this working at Athlon with certain people. I learned this with you. With, with our time together, I learned this with everybody. And it took me a long time in my career to learn it. And that was every single show that you start with someone is going to end. It's going to end at some point. And the goal I think is to try to enjoy the time you have while you have it. And that that's true for me working with Steve on this show. That's true for me working with my former boss at Athlon on our college football podcast. That was me working with you. That was me working with the next iteration of the show. I, it took me a long time to, to learn when you're in it, forget about where it's headed. You have to try to enjoy it. And that's one of the, that's one of the things I learned working with you for that year and a half. Cause we got to see a cup run out of the deal. Like it was yeah. ridiculous. It like, it reminds me so much of being on a tour bus. Like you can have this moment in time where you look around on a bus and you love everybody. Like I'm, 
dealing with this now. Like I, I make no bones about the fact that Mike Gullick Jr. is one of my closest friends in the world. And so, you know, he's not part of the ESPN family anymore. And he's somebody that I see almost every day on campus. And he's somebody I love and look forward to working with on, uh, you know, on, on digital shows. He's also somebody that I enjoy going to dinner with. And so like you have this moment in time where you love the band that's around you. And then you wake up one day and you're like, wow, the band, the band's totally different. So I can either live in the, it used to be this, or I can find the most out of it is now that. And that's easier said than done, man. Like, I think that that's, that's one of the big challenges that I've found in, in media. I thought it'd be more stable in relationships in the music business. And I think actually it's less stable because everybody's <laughs> by nature, everybody's working on two or three year contracts. And that means every two or three years, everything's gutted and changed. When they came to you and said, we want you to do a Snapchat show. A, did you have Snapchat on your phone? And B, how, how do you get your head around doing what is a completely different medium than, than what you'd been doing before? I, uh, I had to test for that Snapchat show probably a dozen times because Snapchat had a hand in the, the decisions as well. And it's the only thing, like, it's funny, my first day on ESPN radio, I connected like on national radio. I connected an hour before. I'd never done it before. I had no idea how we do the screens, N nothing. And they're like, yeah, we'll just wing it. You'll be fine. My first TV show that I mentioned that I did, they handed me a rundown five minutes before we were live on television. And I was like, cool, what's a rundown? I've never seen this before. And the producer was like, <laughs> oh my God. So in my ear, he's like, all right, you got 18 seconds before we're going to get to A32. Like this is deep in the weeds. But I, I mean, I sat there with no idea what the hell I was doing. The only thing I've ever actually had to audition for, if you want to call it that, at, at ESPN was Snapchat. And I kept going back and back and back. And I, I, I remember calling one of my friends saying like, what, what is it? Like, I, I don't use it. I'm a, I'm a grown ass man. No, I'm not on Snapchat. And then, you know, the, the whole pitch to us was, can you speak in three second clips? Because that's how long you have on snap to get them. So like the, there's a moment of, can you be the most energetic, authentic version of yourself? That's real. And in three seconds, get somebody linked in for that entire clip. That's how long you have. That's why they kept auditioning us. But like, when you want to talk about crazy, this is what we loved about Snap when it started. We didn't even have a, a place to film it on campus. So like, we would have to take a camera and a couple of handheld people. And like, I'd have my scripts on my phone because I didn't have a, a work laptop or anything yet. And we would wait, like we were in a side sports center studio. And half the time, Linda Cohn would be there. Like when she was on the East coast waiting for like her cut-ins and getting so angry at us because She'd have a break for a minute and a half. And so I'm like, and that's when I'm dropping all these F-bombs, like screaming at the TV. And I'm like, yeah, we got, I'm like, what am I doing? And she's looking up and she's like, what are you guys doing? And I'm like, I don't know, Linda. Like it was so chaotic, <laughs> but like in the beginning, and, and, you know, I think the numbers have leveled off a little bit, but in the beginning, it was 2.5 million kids a day that watched it. And the funny thing is like, when I go out now, if I, if uh, I was at the national championship in Indianapolis, 10 to one what I get recognized for above anything else I've ever done in my life combined is Snapchat. Like there's a whole community of, of Snapchat bros that like Gary Streisky is one of our main Snapchat on sports center hosts. Like he crushes like the, the following he has, you can't go out in public without in Streisky without being bothered. And I'll never forget when Mike Golick jr. Was on the morning show and had the biggest platform of all of us. Somebody walked up, handed Mike a camera and said, can you take a picture for me? And because they wanted a picture of Gary Streisky and Trevor Scales, two people that half the world didn't even know who they were, but they were sports center on Snapchat hosts. So like, it's a powerful, powerful medium, but there are still times that I come in and do it. Now I've been doing it so long. Like I'm not a regular on it as much, 
but I've, I was filling in recently and somebody came in, one of the production people, they were like, man, you really have a knack for this. Like, seems like, you know, the medium. And I'm like, <laughs> I helped launch the whole thing. Like I was one of the OGs <laughs> on it. Like I was in the original press conference. Let's go. You know? So it's funny. <laughs> it, 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 I, <laughs> I don't even know what the right question is to ask about Snapchat. Cause I do know that they are to, to your point about like how you had to audition. They are better than almost any other platform in terms of making sure that they're, information is vetted that they that they have like you know content policies where you know again I, i'm not trying to get into a COVID discussion i have no desire but like they, they have done a better job than almost any other social media platform of figuring out a way to sort of keep the content honest let's for lack of a better term uh, i feel like what what is the key like how how is it how is it being consumed like other than just watching it on your phone and having it disappear what is it that makes it so successful I think Snapchat speaks to the way kids today uh, want their information. They want quick blasts of tell me what's important and tell it to me in an interesting way. And that's just part of how everything's consumed now. You know, I'll go back to like, you know, I'm a horror movie freak, right? They they went back recently uh, to the original Halloween, which is to me an, an all timer. And they showed it to a group of kids that were all under the age of 18 and it scored at about a three on a scale of one to 10. And everybody said, it's too boring. The, the pace is too slow. Like it, it takes too long to get to the action. That's true of sports center versus sports center on snap. And that's why you look at the numbers. I mean, even today, more kids watch sports center on Snapchat than people watch sports center every day. And that's, that's just true to the, to the brand and where it's gone. And, you know, the other part of it is when you can get highlights anywhere, one of the challenges like, okay, if you're, somebody that's in an older generation, you like watching sports center because that's the way you get your highlights. If you're a Snapchat kid, you can get your highlights from literally anywhere. So now it's got to be, how is this presented and why is it funny and why is it engaging? And you know, how, how can we take the things that made Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen great at their job, but do it in quick, quick blasts. And the toughest part is that in radio, I speak in 12 minute blocks on Snapchat. I speak in three second blocks and digital live stream shows it's somewhere in the middle. And like, figuring out how to translate that constantly is a beast. But if you really want to hit, like I'll, I'll never forget the first time I emailed Jimmy Patero, who's the head of all of ESPN. I was sitting on radio one night on Spain and Fitz at the time. It had just started. And I sent him an email. I'm like, you don't know who the hell I am. And you've certainly never consumed any of my work, but you were on the company. And I'd love to get to know you. You know me, Braden. I'm afraid I'm fearless with that stuff. I get an email back like a minute later and Patero emails me back and he's like, Hey, I listen to you every day because of my travel back and forth. You're the show that happens to be on when I'm coming back from LA. And he's like, B, my kids love you on Snapchat. And he's like, that's what we're looking for. People that are on multiple mediums. And like, I think that there's truth to that. You now have to be a chameleon that can talk to somebody that's 12 and talk to somebody that's 60. And that's the power of what we're trying to do for the future of sports program. Take me through a week. What are you doing throughout the course of a week on ESPN and all of its properties and, and then away from it. So during the fall, my typical week is on Monday this year, I had sports nation, which is on ESPN plus in the mornings. Uh, so I get into the office at about five 45 in the morning. We do sports nation after sports nation. Uh, I've got two or three phoners. I have to do in a production call that I do for the Monday night football tailgate show that we do on digital. So then Monday night, I have to be on campus to do that uh, tailgate show. But before the tailgate show, we do our prep meeting for Spain and Fitz because I have to go straight from the uh, tailgate show to Spain and Fitz. So Monday and Fridays, the, the same, almost the same exact schedule. I'm on campus from 545 in the morning till 915 at night. That's my, my standard Monday through Friday. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday during the fall, 
Spain and Fitz, but on Tuesday, I also have the rankings reaction show during college football season. Thursday, I have a Heisman show. So double dip on those days. Friday, I do Sports Nation. I do a, a show called The Kickoff uh, that you know gets you set for the weekend of college football, then Spain and Fitz at night. Saturday this year, I had um, two different college football shows, the college football show on Twitter, which uh, we're proud of for the second straight years, the number one ranked digital show that we had on college football, over a million people a week watched it. And that was from seven to eight. But then we also had a show called The Wrap Up from 1130 to midnight. So because of the way we consume games, we get on campus at 1130 a.m. So we're there from 1130 until 1 a.m. And then Sundays, uh, Sundays are technically my day off, but Sundays are also the day that you do all of your group chats and your prep for Spain and Fitz for Monday for the football topics and also for the Monday football show. So uh, during the fall, it goes seven days a week, essentially. Um, you know, right now I do college game day for college basketball on Saturdays. That's my big addition. Um, but also we've started draft prep. So last year's first day of the NFL draft digitally, we had 7 million views. We had 10 million views overall for all three days. I host that every year. So that I learned a lot from Trey Wingo. The prep started on that in December on spreadsheets and who's going where and who to look for. And that's why I love covering college football because boy, does it make my draft prep easier, but that's, <laughs> Why exactly did you choose this point to get off of energy drinks? Yeah, because that, it's a good question. It seems like, yeah, that's the 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 funny thing is like, you know, uh, when you look at our digital platforms, everything with the college football except for one show this year I hosted. So, uh, and the one show I didn't host was Countdown to Game Day because that would have required travel to Game Day, which would have taken me out of other shows. So, like the the schedule is too busy to to have to travel. So. I think the thing for me is like, if you want to be relevant at ESPN or anywhere else, like you got to be everywhere. And, you know, if the the mission statement at ESPN is to serve sports fans anytime, anywhere, that doesn't mean sitting and waiting for them to come to your front door. That means you going to them everywhere they are. So, you know, there's a YouTube live stream audience that consumes everything I do with the football uh, that, that matters to me, you know, in the fall, but there's also sports nation matters to plus and, uh, oh yeah, I forgot I did sports center on Snapchat, uh, two days a week during the fall too. And so like that, <laughs> that, you know, hits kids, but radio hits adults and like radio is my passion. Like I love having real conversations with people getting to know people. So like, I love what I do. It's just, you know, I, I, uh, I, it's not uncommon in the fall for me to hit close to a hundred hour work week for months in a row. Like I, I did, I didn't have a day off from August 20th until Christmas week. I was going to say, you, you don't, don't see the family and the dogs, uh, too, too no. often in the fall. Um, I, I know you grew up NFL as your favorite sport, obviously college football sort of as an extension through your work. And you just sort of alluded to what you enjoy of all the different executions to all the different ages and all the different platforms and all the different methodologies. Which one do you enjoy the most? Uh, I love college football digital shows. And, you know, I, that I've looked at, like, I, I know who I am stylistically at this point. Like I always joke that if you gave Reese or Greeny like one too many margaritas and then asked him to host a show, that's going to be kind of me. Like it's going to be a little <laughs> less professional. It's going to be a little less buttoned up. Like I'm not going to do the ad reads as smoothly and I'm probably going to have a little too much fun. I think that works. And, and for me, the NFL is my favorite sport. College football is by far my favorite sport to cover because I genuinely don't care who wins or loses. So, like, I just love great stories. And there's something about the fandom of college football that is just it's untouchable. Like people give a damn at a higher level and they give a damn across the board every single day. Yeah, there are pockets. Yes, there are teams in the NFL that everybody cares about or that have huge, passionate fan bases. But 
there, there's also your fair share of Jags fans that are, you know, a couple of them out there and they're not particularly loud. Right. So I, I think that the fact that every Saturday there's a real passionate reaction, a guttural reaction to what happens, that's my favorite thing to cover. And like getting to do live react shows, like pregame shows are fun. Like we'll do one for the Super Bowl. It's, it's fun. Uh, but post game, Hey, this is, this is what happened where you can read some highlights a little bit like an idiot and then break it all down. That to me is the most fun you can have. We we have to touch on a very important part of who you are, which is your Raiders fandom. Rough year to be a Raiders fan. Yeah. I mean, a lot. I mean, a lot of highs and lows. Made the playoffs. I mean, you made the playoffs. Maybe you should have taken a knee. But uh, but uh, <laughs> what's it been like to turn something that you've watched your entire life and been a fan of? into something that you talk about on a regular basis. It, uh, it's the most fun you could ever have, you know, like this year I, I did a podcast for the Raiders a bunch, um, you know, because they like having the national voice. It's maybe a little bit one step removed, but still a fan. And uh, the fact that like there are people in the Raiders organization that know my name, the fact that like this year I got to go to the first game ever with fans in the stands that the team had me out toward the practice facility, hung out with everybody you know, sitting in the studio, just shooting the, you know, what with like JT, the brick. And like, I think about how many times I've sat and listened to somebody like JT, the brick, you know, and um, I hosted a panel for ESPN plus about the tuck rule after our 30 for 30. And like when Lincoln Kennedy connects, he's like, what's up, man. And I'm looking around and like Lincoln and Damian Woody and Sal Powell, like they all know me and, and respect my work and that stuff. Like, I don't know when, when I, when I was in music and, and I left the band that I'd been in for years, that never made it. I remember somebody asked me, what do you want more than anything? And I said, the one thing I want is for people to like respect, respect my work. Like, I don't really care about fame or fortune. I care about like, do people say, wow, he's a good dude and he works his ass off and he does good work. And I think what's happened through the Raiders process is like getting people in that building to realize the work that I do has been really like, it's been incredible to walk through that stadium on the opening night and know that I had a press pass and could go anywhere I wanted and, and really have that level of, of love from the team, you know, uh, obviously he's a polarizing figure now for incredibly smart reasons. And there's, I'm never going to defend anything that John Gruden says. Uh, I thought last year at the end of the season, I, like I surprised, I got a, a Jersey in the mail from the team that says number 20 on it says Vegas for their inaugural year that Gruden signed on the back to keep up the good work. And I'm like, just the fact that they thought enough of me to do that stuff. Those are the moments you pull back and like, hell yeah. Uh, like I worried when I started doing this, that it would, quell some portion of my fandom all it's done is made it bigger louder and i'll never forget the rest of my life being in indianapolis for the national championship game at the hotel bar watching the raiders play the chargers and i look around and it is packed with l duncan and laura rutledge and jesse palmer and like all the sec nation crew and i i mean it was a thousand dollar bar tab i uh, regret that portion of it but there was a moment where i turned around and the whole bar is chanting my name while we're jumping up and down and there's shots being taken by everybody because they knew how much the raiders making the playoffs means to me that's just like those are the moments that give you goosebumps that whatever my future ever holds, like I'll remember that night the, the rest of my life. And to Braden's point earlier, those are the moments you soak in and it happens because of my fandom. What's what's hilarious is it would I wonder if you'd feel differently if you had to report on John Gruden. <laughs> that'd, be <very> <laughs> yeah, yeah. that'd be very different. Uh, that's but that's a different side of the company. Oh, and uh, yeah. And by the way, that. let's let's just uh, thinly say we'll skate on thin ice, pun intended. As I say that I learned a lot about what it's like to work for an affiliate, uh, you know, a, a flagship station working at 1025 also like 
I'll never forget certain people <laughs> from the Preds calling in live while we were on air saying that Braden and I were being too negative. That's all I'm going to say about that. You know, <laughs> I learned, learned some lessons. You can say anything you want. So you, <laughs> you could say, I, I, you're in a safe space. Anything you I, want. To say. I just think instead of the the title at president, maybe it should be the title like at sensitive. That's all. That's all wow. I'm saying. Wow. Wow. All right. All right. So here, I'll, I'll spin this around because I find it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Raiders angle, I, I, to me, it was always a conscious decision, sort of how I was going to deploy my fandom on air. Uh, like I was always I sort of had a, a strategy about it. I, you, I, I didn't want I didn't want the average listener to tune in. And, and everybody has a different strategy on this. Some people think you should never mention it. Some people go all in. You're probably a little bit more in that category. I kind of like being in the middle where I don't want someone to sort of overtly know where I went to school or who I root for or whatever, but I'm going to use it when it benefits the content to say like, Hey, I'm saying this as an alumni and being critical of the AD or, or whatever. Like I, I, I would, I like to use it in sort of like fits and starts. Nope. No pun intended. That was terrible. Um, what you, you sort of always had it baked into your on-air personality. Like you do videos with your, your, your puppies picking games with the Raiders stuff. Like it's always been baked into who you are. And I, and I don't, you don't see that a lot at major national media companies. I think it's cool that you have been able to kind of maintain that brand. If that makes sense. I think that's where Greeny is a little bit of an influence, right? Like I know the yeah. jets are a big market, but like, I think jets, I think Greeny. And when I first started at ESPN, I was real hesitant. I did get, there were a couple of bosses that were like, hey man, don't work the Raiders into every conversation. It's like, I hear you. When Gruden got hired, uh, the bosses at the time came in and said, hey, this makes the Raiders a bigger national story. And, you know, you can lean into it. And now it's funny, we we get uh, coached every couple of weeks. We go in and have listening sessions with some of our bosses. And the night that Mayock was fired, we actually didn't, uh, we didn't lead with it, even though it happened right as we were going to air. And one of my bosses was like, you are now ident- like nationally, you are identifiable as someone that speaks to the Raiders. So when Raiders news breaks, there are people that tune to ESPN radio to hear what you say. You needed to get it in faster. And so it's a, it's kind of funny how like that has changed. But I think it took first gaining. It's a little bit like music. When I first started, they told me not to talk about music all the time. And now they're like, integrate your music more. Like, I think you have to sort of become a foundation of that the people say, okay, he's here for a reason. He's got this varied experience. This is why we respect him. Then you can start to branch out from that. So over the course of the years, I think working in so many different platforms on so many shows helped me now get the, the ability to talk about the Raiders as much as I do. Cause you're right now it's cooked in to everything I do all the time. We have to get a, at least one thing in here. How annoying was it to work with Braden four hours a day? Well, I mean, you know, there are certain people that that are right, and then there's certain people that know they're right. And you know, Braden's on <laughs> on whichever side of that, that that no. I think the funniest thing about working with Braden, and if you injected truth serum into both of them, I think they would equally agree in separate quarters. I think working with Braden and Julian Council, our producer at the time, I was working with two people that uh, I genuinely believe are more passionate about what they believe every day than I am about most things. I think there's a happy medium sometimes. Uh, but one thing that I do laugh about, and I, I, I laughed about this all the time when we were on air together, I still laugh about it. The amount of times I'll come in and I, you know, I'm working with Sarah Spain and Sarah's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life on radio. And I'll come in and I'll be like, oh, I'm super hot on, you know, I, I heard this great thing on Aaron Rodgers or whatever it's going to be like, let, let's, I, I'm hot on this. And she'll be like, nah. I'm the type of person like some radio co-hosts will come in and be like, well, what do you mean? Like I'm the type to be like, okay, 
I think it's the songwriting background in me where I'm like, I suggested a lyric, you hate it. Cool. We'll just scrape it away and we'll keep going. Like uh, no, no skin off my back. I think what, uh, th- what I learned from Braden though, is like, there is a happy medium because he is, he come, he would come in passionate a lot of times. And then Julian would come in passionate in a different way. And they're yelling at each other. And I'm sitting in the room and I'm like, I don't, I don't really care y'all. Like, like, and to a fault, this is, this is one of the other things ingrained in my music background that changes who I am today. I am so used to walking in and having a record label head. I won't say which one say this song is trash. It's never getting released. Here's your new single. And then you're like, okay, that's the way this is going down. Like, so for me, <laughs> when people come in and they're like, you need to talk more about the Preds. I don't always agree with that situation. I don't think that that serves the broadest set of the audience, but I'm the type to be like, all right, that's what you say to do. Like I told my boss at ESPN, the same thing. And Braden's heard me say this before when he was giving us critiques on what to talk about a couple of years, like I guess that I'm going to execute your game plan to the T. And that way, if the ratings suck, you get fired. And I don't like, that's always been my, my logic. Braden is much <laughs> more passionate about the, well, that's a stupid idea. So I'm the quarterback that walks up to the line of scrimmage and says like, no, nah, I'm good with anything. Braden's the one that looks over the sideline and says, we're calling what? So, you know, that's a, that, that's that's Braden. If it makes you feel any better, I learned a lot. And this also tied into having a, ch- a child and being married all at the same time of launching the show with you. Oh, my God. Learning, um, learning to pick your battles is absolutely something I was terrible at before. I'm not exactly great at it now, but I'm better at it because I worked with you. So I, I maybe I'm but, getting and crotchety I, I and think- old, but. Whatever. I don't think, by the way, like I'll go back to I think one of the most pigheaded people I've ever worked with in my life is Rosillo. And Rosillo is also one of the best people I've like when I when I when you when radio was Rosillo and, and I would be on that show, you're talking about somebody that comes in and the minute everybody walked in the room, he'd be like, What are you hot on? And you give him one sentence, he's like, Yeah, hey, 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 yes, no, 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 yes, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. Then he'd be like, We're gonna do this, 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 this. Everybody break and he walks out of the room. And I'm like, but made for great radio. So like, I think as long as you believe passionately about where you are on that spectrum, like I I actually have learned, I learned from you that I need to have more balls. Sometimes I'm just not the best at that. Like I'm, I'm the guy that like, I'll be like, I'm pushing back on it unless you don't want me to push back. In which case (laughs) it's totally fine. Like, no, the the number of times we'd be in the middle of a commercial break and Fitzy would be like, I'm just not dying on that hill, Brady. And I'd be like, Oh, fine. That's probably the right approach. Like it would, It, it would take me like four breaks to get there, but eventually I would, I would finally get there. So there's also um, this weird, like fault for me, the know your worth. I, I work with a lot of people that will tell you, like, as you walk around the halls, when they're being asked to do things they don't want to, they're like, I know my worth. I'm not going to do that. I come from such a, uh, there was a drummer years ago that was touring with a huge band. And I remember him coming in and saying to all of us that were on the road, I'm going to go in and tell them if they don't double my salary, I quit. And I was like, cool question. How many people do you think in the amphitheater are not going to buy tickets to the next show because you're not the drummer? And if the answer to that is not many, then your value is replaceable. So just be really sure about that before you do it. That today, like still is part of my mindset when everybody else I work with is like, know your worth. I'm like, that's a problem. I know my worth and I'm getting way more than I deserve. So I'm just going to sit here and take a beating. Like that's that's the uh, that, that's the problematic approach for me. That's that's what makes living in the Twitter sewers fun for me. I I, <laughs> I have no I have no. You want to insult me on the Twitters? I'm honored. I am honored. You took time out of your day to tell me how much of a moron that I am. Fitzy, thank you so much for giving us uh, all of your time. Where by the where where's everybody going to catch you all weekend long? 
we got, we have a little football game this weekend. So yeah, we'll be doing a digital pregame show for the Super Bowl uh, for an hour before the game kicks. So I think five to six, and you can check that out on any of the ESPN social platforms, especially on YouTube. Uh, we get that, that stuff lives forever on YouTube. But if you're on Twitter, ESPN tweets it out. I tweet it out at Jason Fitz. Also on Saturday. I'll be doing countdown to college basketball game day uh, as I do every Saturday. So, or Spain and Fitz, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday on ESPN Radio and Sirius XM Channel 8. There you have it, presented by Progressive Insurance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so Don't much, man. It's great to see you, dude. Uh, we appreciate your time today on the show. Thank you. You guys are the best. Thanks for having me. That was the great Jason Fitz from ESPN across every single platform, Grammy-nominated fiddle player for the band Perry, and, you know, for that one year, a local host here in Nashville on 102.5 The Game. Uh, one course, forgettable Jason, year. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jason Fitz, of course, brought to you. We'll have ratings and recommendations, of course, coming up in just a minute. Jason Fitz's appearance on the show brought to you by Jaspers, the wonderful folks over uh, on West End, the next evolution of the sports bar, Steve. Sure. Sure? I don't, I don't disagree with that. Uh, well, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm comforted by the fact that you don't disagree with that. Go to Jasper's for the weekend for Preds games. You got great happy hour, great specials, free parking. The menu's evolving. There's new items on there. You know, you could put together a really great sort of collection of foods for this weekend. In fact, if there was something big you were perhaps watching on a Sunday, they would be your place to do it. So go check out Jasper's. We love Jasper's. Fitzy is just, there's a lot of things I learned from him, Steve. And I, I mentioned a few of them during the show. I think. My father taught me as a sales manager for a long time about transfer of enthusiasm as, as sort of the main you know, skill set and trait to have when you're in sales. And I don't think anyone I've ever worked with in the history of my life is better at transfer of enthusiasm than Jason Fitz. Well, it's because he has more enthusiasm to transfer than <laughs> almost anyone. So I mean, large reservoir, large, large reservoir of enthusiasm. No, no, Fitzy is just, he's just one of the most unique guys kind of in this, in this business because of his talent set and because of the way he, he was doing something. I mean, you don't get into Juilliard unless you are amazingly proficient. And then to be able to take that and, and say, you know, I'm going to pivot away from doing any of that, that I'm not going to be in the music industry anymore is something that a lot of people would not have the guts to do. And I, his, his transition has just sort of fascinated me since he did it. And I, I just enjoy, I, I mean, I downloaded when, when they started the Snapchat sports center, I downloaded it just to see what it was because I'm outside. We'll just charitably say I'm outside Snapchat's <laughs> uh, normal demographic. And it's interesting. It's really interesting. It is not for me, but I'm fascinated you know, this idea that you're I, meeting people in their medium. I, I don't know how you are your authentic, genuine, passionate self and get any any depth through in three seconds, but he somehow figures out how to do it. Like I, I, I to your point, I'm not that guy either. And I will say, I think Fitzy, you know, if you don't know anything about his background, we didn't talk about it on the show today, but you know, he he had an interesting home situation. Went to Juilliard, Juilliard at a very young age um, after having a very interesting home situation, and so this sort of I don't know how to like self ambitious drive and meticulous perfection and energy like all of that stuff is how he got like your point how he was great 
at playing fiddle, why he ended up with gold records on his wall. And it's why when he launched a podcast and just like I've talked to Steve Gorman about this, like it's easier to start a media career if you are a giant rock star. (laughs) Let's just let's just be honest about that. But it doesn't mean you're going to stay there. And Fitzy has not only stayed there, but exploded even further. And it's all all the credit is due to his talent, his work ethic, his drive. He is incredibly coachable. He is intentional about everything that he does. And uh, it was a, a, I was honored to have a year to work with him. And, um, you know, while I did like we he and I disagreed on stuff and we had some tough shows and some tricky situations, but like I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was a great year. One of the best years of my career. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Open I, up, open up your phone. He's probably hosting a show on there right now. <laughs> right, right. Immediately after he got done with us, since he talks for 100 hours a week, we thought we'd make him talk for another hour. So uh, special thanks to Fitzy, of course, brought to you by the great folks at Jasper's. All right. Uh, ratings and recommendations. These, of course, it's pretty good. Okay. Mark Binda from News Channel 5. All these ratings currently, of course, from Mark Binda. The five day primetime average for the Winter Olympics was a 5.2, which is 57% below the first five days of the previous Winter Olympics, which pulled 12s and 13s on average in 2018. So in the four years since the previous Winter Olympics, it is more than half of the amount of people watching in Nashville than it was just four years ago. That is a large statistic. What's interesting to me is that they are they are largely analogous analogous uh, ratings because it's the same kind of time shifting as that you saw four years ago. I mean, four years ago they were in Pyongyang, and I'm sure I just mangled that uh, in South Korea. Pyongyang, uh, there you go. Yeah. You got it. They're in uh, they're in Beijing right now, and and, it, and it's largely the same for U.S. consumers in which in which we are getting some live events. I stayed up and watched some some of the men's and the women's half pipe uh, snowboarding stuff because I like to see like Sean it. White soaring like twenty five feet in the air. <laughs> it was late, you know. It was it was midnight by the time but by, by the time I caught White's second. Uh, well, and. Like the women, the U.S. women were playing the Canadian women hockey, and, and my daughter was like all excited about it. And then I checked the time, and it was like ten forty-five. And I was like, "Oh crap! Sorry, dear. You're gonna have to watch yeah. this tomorrow morning during breakfast." I will say this, and I think you tweeted about it, and I said it before I read your tweet to my wife. We were watching the ski jump, big air, and I'm like, "Why are they jumping into nuclear power plants? <laughs> why? Why is that?" Somebody the pointed out to me that steel plants can have cooling towers as well. It's something I was not aware of. <laughs> Learn something new on every day. Twitter, this application is free. The only other sporting event to register in the top five in Nashville over the past week was the Kentucky-Alabama basketball game at a 3.6. So the I was going to say, it's three point something because yeah. <laughs> three is your base is right, your baseline right. for Kentucky fans. And Alabama fans, um, who, who knows? 4.7 Winter Olympics on the third, 4.8 on the fifth, 5.1 on the fourth. And a 6.0. Again, the average household rating of 5.2, which is 57% lower than 2018. Do you know this off the top of your head? Are the Summer Olympics far more viewed than the Winter Olympics? I'm assuming they are. They are. Yeah. They, they have. They have between. They have. They have two big built-in audiences. They have a. They have a gymnastics audience and they have a swimming audience track. over the course of. The, yeah, and then track track has has declined some, but. You know, you still have the you still have some of those glamour events, particularly the sprints that that draw yeah. big audiences. Yeah. 
Um, all right, let's go to recommendations, and I'll get mine out of the way here first, Steve, before we wrap up today on the program, and maybe you can make a Super Bowl prediction for me. I, I My wife and I have finished all six episodes of this, so we started the show after last week's episode and have finished it before this week's episode. <laughs> uh, Murderville on Netflix. Jason really? Ar- Jason Arnett, and here's the concept of the show, and it is so effing brilliant. So there is there's six episodes, and each episode is a guest co-star, and each co-star has to solve a murder in that episode, and they have never seen a script. So yeah, it is ex- the whole thing's improv. The, the I, I think there's a script for all the other actors because there's way too many really great one lines, but the person on the show has no idea. Sharon Stone, brilliant. Uh, who's the guy from from Hangover? Ken, uh, I can't remember his last name. Ken uh, Jong. Ken Jong, he is absolutely brilliant. Kamel from <laughs> Kamel from uh, uh, HBO's Silicon Valley, absolutely exceptional, brilliant. Annie from uh, Schitt's Creek, I'm messing up all these people's names. Annie uh, Murphy. Annie Murphy uh, from Schitt's Creek. She was actually the worst one of the group, and my wife was very disappointed by that as Schitt's Creek aficionados. Um, and then there was Conan O'Brien as well. It was just, it is so funny watching these very talented comedic actors being completely startled by plots, storylines, one-liners, Will Arnett. And it's, it's just, it is so charming, so much fun. And then you can kind of play along trying to solve the mystery with them. And then at the very end, they either get fired because they got the criminal wrong or they get promoted because they get, they, they solved the crime. So it's completely meaningless, but it is completely hilarious. So go check out Murderville. Highly, in- highly recommend. I'm interested in that because I have heard, wildly different reviews really somebody somebody described it to me as is something that should have been an snl sketch and limited to eight minutes like it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the full what is it the what are the half hours or hours it no it's about 20 it's like 28 minutes probably said Um, said that they should have been that they would have been better much tighter so i'm gonna watch a couple episodes because i i just now now i just kind of want to see where, where the difference in opinions comes in. What's fascinating is they have it structured really interestingly. So like the first five to eight minutes are always sort of like just Will Arnett being introduced to the new co-star and then they just sort of riff and improv together. And that's almost the best part of the show. Then they go interview each of the three suspects and each one of them is sort of its own little improv scene. So it's sort of like, and then there's a final scene. It's sort of like five SNL skits in one, but with the co-star, I, I actually think it's the right, I don't want it to be any longer, but I don't want it to be shorter. I think there's, again, I love Annie Murphy. I think Shit's Creek's one of the greatest shows ever invented. She just didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so that episode, and you'll know what I mean. The other ones, like you can see the people like, you know, contributing and coming up with different directions to take it off the top of their head. And a lot of time pulling a Jimmy Fallon and laughing. <laughs> That's something that Arnett is saying. And I just think it's charming. I enjoy it. It's fun. Cool. My recommendation is, is an audiobook. Michael Lewis, I've mentioned him a couple of times on here, wrote Moneyball, wrote The Blind Side, wrote The Big Short, wrote recently The Premonition about the pandemic. Very prolific author, one of the best narrative nonfiction authors ever. The audiobook writes for his very first book, the book called Liar's Poker. It reverted back to him. And what they had done was they had chopped up and really abridged the book when they released it the first time. So this is an unabridged version that he reads and it's, it's fascinating. He's a very soothing voice. Uh, so it's a, it's a great listen, but liars poker is his, he worked for Salmon brothers, which was a big bond trading outfit uh, in the eighties. 
straight out of uh, straight out of college. And it's kind of his start as a young writer. He was a bond salesman for three years and then quit to write Liar's Poker. It is regarded as one of the definitive books uh, looking at the kind of the go-go 80s and some of the problems behind it with kind of within the financial industry. There are things in that that preface the mortgage bond crisis that we had here in the in the aughts that led to the, the last giant recession. You know, who, who they didn't were, see the subprime mortgage industry problem. I mean, exactly. Who didn't see that other than but, Christian but Bale. Lewis's descriptions are so good. And he, he puts you in such a place. He puts you in the middle of the training program yeah. at Salmon Brothers and kind of what and, and like all the forces that were in play and how cutthroat, you know, this was within the within the realm of Wall Street. It's it, it's just such a good listen. Can you buy the new unabridged version in, in actual book form or is it only audio? It's only it's only audio. It is the version that was released originally. Okay, uh, but the audio book was 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 cut way down. Now, have you ever actually played Liars Poker? Uh, I have not. It is uh, a golf family tradition. So much fun. The description of which I would not be good at Liars Poker. It's the best it's, thing. It's the best. It's like one of the best bar games you could ever play. You could go to Jasper's and play it actually, because <laughs> you all you um, need is a bunch of one dollar bills and you just gamble on the serial numbers. It's great. It's fantastic. But the interesting thing is, so Lewis also hosts a podcast. I think I've recommended on here before called Against the Rules. And on the Against the Rules feed, he's doing a companion to the book where he goes back and talks to some of the people, including like people that that book cost them their job. In the in, in the late '80s, like he talks to a bunch of the the people that are still around from there. It's fascinating, and, it, and it's a really look, and, and it's a really good look too. And he was, he was a very young writer; he was twenty six or twenty seven when he wrote That's, it. That pisses um, me. That pisses me off. <laughs> when, when and he talks about kind of like in the course of going back and reading this book for the for the audio book, he realizes like. He's like, I'm a better writer now than I was then, and he like he sees like some of the mistakes yeah. that he made kind of within the book. It's it, it's a great listen, and it's a fascinating subject. If you and I came up with a lamestream power rankings of authors, I I don't know if we combined our lists based on like our own favorites. I'm not sure who would be ahead of Michael Lewis. I'm I'm not sure either. He's he's just he's he's very prolific. He has a knack for description. Yeah. That yeah. That few nonfiction writers have. I mean, like I, I love Don Don Winslow, but he's fiction. I love Crack Hour. I know you love Jane Mayer. I love Jane Mayer. Like we we love a lot of different writers on this show. Um, I'm not. I think Michael Lewis would be the combo. Like if we were the AP poll, right? Like I think yep. they would. I think Lewis would get the. Would have he got the, the coaches poll and the AP. <laughs> right, right. I think he might be at the top of the list uh, for both of us. All right. Anything else, everybody? Oh, so who's going to win the game on Sunday? Who you got? Uh, I think the Rams. I have money on the Rams in February and a betting slip to prove it. Are you going to add to that betting slip? Uh, yes, by hedging, because I think Cincinnati is going to win outright. Give me the really? Bengals. Give me the Bengals outright. Do not ever bet against Joe Burrow ever in anything that he ever does. My uninformed opinion here, uh, I, I think Burrow is going to be in this game again in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is bad for the Titans in the AFC. <laughs> yes, but uh, yes. but I think... Uh, Matthew Stafford's going to get his his this is this is his only chance. I think he's going to get a ring. I am rooting for Stafford to get the ring and for yeah. my Rams bet to pay off because it's a bigger bet. But my brain is telling, <laughs> my brain is telling me 
the Bengals on the money line outright win the game on Sunday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Happy Super Bowl to everybody. Eat some great food. Go to Jasper's. Thank you so much to Jason Fitz for hanging out with us. You can find Steve Cavendish at S. Cavendish everywhere on the internet. You can find me at Braden Gall. 440 Sports on the YouTubes and the Facebook and all the other socials as well. No Snapchat yet. Maybe we'll get there one day. Thank you guys all for listening. This has been Lamestream Sports here on the 440 Sports Network.